Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. Uh, This one has been a little while in the making due to our schedules, but absolutely stoked to share this episode. I have a chat with Josh Reeve from Empire Protection in Australia. Um, I first got in touch with Josh and his business partner, Ryan, uh, who was previously on this podcast. So have a listen if you haven't already uh, through LinkedIn. Josh started his career in the Australian Federal Police, uh, the AFP, initially in Canberra, then moving uh, to Melbourne and being and was part of the Dignitary Protection Unit, uh, protecting even the Pope himself. You know, no big deal. <laughs> um, from the AFP, Josh left to pursue a career in the private sector, initially working for various government units uh, in a private contracting capacity. Uh, several years and an incredible amount of professional experience later, Josh started up Empire Protection with Ryan, providing some of the highest security services, not only in Australia, but worldwide as well. Their uh, portfolio includes the ultra-high net worth, major corporations, uh, even the UFC, uh, and, and many more on the list. In addition to Empire Protection, the lads have also set up Empire Institute, a training wing of the business that provides online training resources Uh, mainly catered to those in the security industry, Um, but having done a few of the courses myself, um, you could probably apply them to a whole lot of other industries as well, Uh, so certainly check them out. Um, Anyways, if you are thinking of a career in the security industry, looking for security training, or looking for a highly reputable and professional company, uh, check Josh and Empire Protection out using the links below. Um, Yeah, so everyone, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it, and uh, please enjoy the episode. Cheers. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Um, back on the Tell Me podcast with Josh Reeve. So uh, Josh and I, um, we were sort of introduced, I suppose, uh, through LinkedIn, through networking, that sort of thing, um, just as I was landing in the UK from Australia. Unfortunately, I wish I'd met the Josh and his business partner, Ryan, who was on this podcast when I was still in Australia. But you know what? It is what it is. Um, Josh, welcome on the podcast, mate. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll get into it. Um, so you've, you've obviously listened on the podcast, you know, how it operates. Um, so yeah, tell me in as much detail as possible, man, what was your, um, what were your beginnings? What was your upbringing? Like that sort of thing. Yeah, man. Um, so I was born in New Zealand. I was there for a grand total of eight weeks or something. Um, so I don't really claim anything with that. Um, moved over to Australia, obviously at a very young age, um, my father passed away when I was really young, so I grew up pretty much with just mum. And being an only child was kind of interesting, um, just having the two people in the house most of the time. Um, couldn't really get away with anything because that was always that classic question of like, who did that? Well, come on. <laughs> no other option. <laughs> it wasn't <there>. you. <laughs> if it wasn't you, then it was obviously me. Let's just cut yeah. the game. Um, but my mum was amazing, like never missed anything. You know, she, she gave me every opportunity. I don't know how she managed to do it all um, on her own. Got every opportunity, never 
never really knew I was missing anything sort of ever. Um, probably till I was an adult and realized that lots of people had fathers that didn't really sort of hit me at all. Um, yeah. yeah, so grew up with mum, obviously, very close relationship there. Um, I grew up in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. Um, reasonably small place. Um, it's a couple hundred thousand people back then. Um, the majority of Canberra sort of centered around the, the federal government and, and the workers um, involved in the federal government. So sort of had like constant exposure to that government space growing up. Um, when I was 15, I sort of just by random set of events um, started training to be a pilot and um, got reasonably far through that. Had uh, I think I was flying solo before I could drive a car on my own. Um, so I sort of had this career path mapped out that, you know, I was 15 flying solo. Um, I had this this great instructor who was close to retirement and he sort of said, well, I'll get you trained up. And obviously it's really expensive. So he was looking after us a lot um, to get me through that process. And I think I sort of had a little bit of a, a protege set up going there and a, sort of the, the plan was he was going to retire and I was going to take all the operational flying for his, you know, sort of small charter business. And so I think like sort of 15, 16, 17, I just thought, oh, well, this is mapped out. I've got this all sorted and didn't really think too much about my career. Um, I, I did just enough at school to keep the grades for the flying and um, that was about it. I wasn't too interested in school. I, I didn't want to go to university or anything like that. I just wanted to get out in the world. Um, and I think I was like just shy of, sort of the commercial license and all the ratings you need to to get through. And he um, he failed his medical and they took his license and he wasn't allowed to fly anymore. So he pretty much just sold up and oh. and uh, moved away. And I was like, oh, right. And all the other companies that I went through to try and finish were like, oh, yeah, we need 50 grand up front. We need this up front. You know, you got to do it. That's yeah. just not an option. Like, that, that's not going to happen. Um, so sort of near the end of like year 12 about to graduate high school sort of hit that you know and I, as i said i hadn't really tried that hard i just did enough um yeah it sort of just didn't happen i was like ah, oh, um really sure what i do <laughs> never had to think about what i was going to do for a job so yeah sort of sort of hit me a little bit and i started looking at things like the air force and the military for for that sort of thing but i think again that in my headspace at 16 and not really Again, not having had to think about a career path, the idea of a, a seven or eight year commitment or whatever it was at the time seemed pretty daunting. I didn't know what I wanted to do the next day, let alone, yeah, you know, sort of eight years away. Um, yeah, so that was sort of an interesting realization to, to have to be back in the real world um, and making decisions about your life. So I I didn't do that. I just bummed around for a bit more because that seemed too too daunting. Um, eventually. So I always had an interest in cars, so I decided to do a mechanics apprenticeship and, and look into maybe mechanical engineering or something, but realized I'd probably kicked myself by not doing well enough at school for, <laughs> for that kind of thing because I didn't think I had to. Um, so I did, did a small portion of a mechanics apprenticeship, realized um, everything I thought I'd be doing just wouldn't be happening. Um, you know, you get all these ideas in your head as a young young man about working on, you know, race teams or out there doing all these exciting flash cars and you realize you're just changing oil filters on Hyundai's <laughs> yeah. eight, 10 hours a day. And yeah, the, the pay's not very good and it's it's not the best job. Um, so after being on, I think like $4.90 an hour for for a year or so, um, 
you know, minus tool expenses and all those other things. And I was like, oh, I just need some money and whatever. So a mate was working pub doors in town at a few of the nightclubs. Um, and I was 18, reasonably fit and healthy and whatever. I thought, oh, yeah, well, it was paying thousand bucks a week or something back then. So, but yeah, why not? I'll go do that for a little while until I figure out what I'm actually going to do. Yeah. Um, so I worked private security, you know, just at the, the base level, everything from um, mobile patrols to government work to pub doors to, you know, whatever was around that paid bills. Um, and sort of thought that whole time, well, I'll, you know, while I'm doing this, I'll figure my shit out and work out what I'm actually going to do properly. Um, and I guess just through that time, I had a lot of interaction with the police um, just through my roles in security. And I think through through some really positive interactions with some local police and and um, having a think about it, I sort of thought maybe that's that's where I want to be. You know, you don't need you don't need university degrees. You don't need sort of the, the things that I didn't have. Um, yeah. You just need a good attitude and willingness to learn all that sort of thing. So um, back then, you had to have a like a sponsor that was already a, a police member. They right. had to kind of like provide a reference to say they think he'd be suitable. So yeah. um, I started asking around and I found a sergeant who said, you know, look, because you're 19, you're probably going to get rejected two or three times. Um, it's because you're young and, and they want to see that you're actually, you know, keen and, and it's a yeah. serious thing. Um, so he said, start applying now at 19 and then maybe by so 24, 25, you'll be in and, and that'll be good. So I sort of, I did that and I shelved the idea and I thought, well, I'll just do whatever I have to do for a couple of years to, to get to that point. Um, and I got in first go. So it was kind of just a whirlwind after that because I wasn't really even expecting to be there. Um, I think it was like just after my 20th birthday. Yeah, right. Uh, there I was at the academy. So, um, and it happened quick. Like I got the call to say, you've been selected. Yeah, it was a nine-month process, I think, to go through all the testing and the, the clearances and all that sort of thing. But yeah. the day they called to say, you know, here it is. It was like a month later I was at the academy and, <laughs> and that was sort of it. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Um, just to, um, just to go back with, with, uh, your mom, who sounds like a, you know, an amazing person. Um, so Canberra, just for those that are listening in, um, like Josh was saying, it's mainly government folk for the federal government there. Uh, and there's also a big university there. So it's, it's kind of the, those two are like the, the main industries really. What was, was your mom working for government or, um, what would it, what did she do uh, for work? Yeah, she was a, she was a public servant um, okay. in various departments through most yeah. of that time. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and then um, so the police that uh, you're, you're obviously now going into um, that's the Australian Federal Police, um, who obviously provide a, a general duties type presence in uh, in ACT in Canberra, and then they also have the yeah. overreach of obviously the Commonwealth uh, in in Australia. Yeah. So what was the um, yeah? So it's, it's other the opinion? Australian Federal Police banner but the act police is like a whole separate division that yeah just works like any state police force i guess it just it just has that branding yeah and what was the um so was it was it really was your application done really quickly because it was a uh you know one of those cycles of recruitment or was it just by fluke that you know you, you kind of just went through nice and quick it's an interesting question like people have asked in the past is it hard to get into the afp or, or whatever like i'd because I got in, I don't know if it's hard or not. I just yeah, did yeah. what they asked me to do, and and then yeah. I got there. I, I don't know what it was that that got me through. I'm not like I'd, I'd be very surprised if I got 100 percent on all the academic testing. Um, yeah. 
even though I didn't really sort of have wasn't that way inclined at the time. Um, so I, I honestly don't know kind of what it was. It, it was good timing in that it was post nine eleven and and kind of around the time of Bali bombings. Okay, uh, yeah, in, in Indonesia there. So um, I don't think they'd like massively ramped up the recruitment, you know, yet. But obviously the global climate was was such that. Um, yeah, I, I guess they were. Yeah, like security was on the forefront of people's minds, maybe. I suppose. Um, you know, yeah, like- maybe I got lucky, but I don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it was paramilitary sort of style back then. It was, um, you know, it was comfortable enough. It was whatever. The, again, because I hadn't kind of got into the headspace of knowing what to expect and because I wasn't really expecting it, I hadn't sort of done enough research, I guess, and, and put my head in that space. Um and, and I guess they just keep you so busy. It just feels like a whirlwind. Like you turn up on day one, you, you're doing a million things a day, yeah, every day, and then it, and then it's done. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was comfortable. I felt like I learned a lot. I mean, I look back now and, and I understand it was to a basic standard, obviously. But um, you know, I think from my perspective, going from nothing to that, yeah. you know, I felt like it was pretty good. And at the time, there was a a heap of um, obviously baseline level there was a heap of ct courses and and stuff thrown into the academy at the time because of the the global climate so there's an immediate exposure straight to things like kill houses and and simunition training and that advanced critical incident response training was all sort of thrown in as a a package into the the courses at the time which i think that's probably where my genuine interest immediately sparked was like you know i was there i was doing it it was cool i'm gonna be a cop that's cool um and I don't think I ever pictured anything more than just driving around in a patrol car and and doing that community level policing. But then suddenly, I went, okay, there's actually this this whole other element here that I never really yeah. considered. Or if I did, I probably thought that's like ten years away. Or you know, you've got to be somebody special to be there or whatever. But it just kind of opened my eyes to that that level of opportunity. And again, being young and fit and keen and whatever, I thought, okay, maybe that's that's what I need to pursue. And um, again, I think the global climate. You know, probably it was fortuitous timing that that more opportunities in that kind of space were were around. Yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah. I, I love the um the, the you know the, the I love my time in the police and, and the the fact that it's it's one you know title one job role, but there's so many different avenues you can go down, um, and you don't really seem to understand what they are until you're actually in it and you speak to somebody who's done it. Um, so I guess for somebody who you know. You had obviously your, your 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 mind and your heart set on the on flying, and then it just kind of got taken away from you, and, and not having that sort of direction. It was, it, I would imagine, it was kind of nice having all these different opportunities that you could potentially go down and, and just test the waters. And um, what was the the first sort of thing that you did after uh, you know the academy after graduation? Was it that community level policing uh, to start off with, like everyone else? And then did you go and specialize after that, or? Um, so I actually got. Um, a, a pretty immediate posting to um, our federal defense portfolio um, providing uh, response capability to, to some of their high value assets. Okay. Yeah. Um, inside Canberra there. So, so a little bit, you know, I mean, in, in practice, reasonably basic, but, um, you know, sort of in that, that space of that, that different, more specialized work. Yeah. So again, it was just a chance to be exposed to that, that kind of thing. Um, you know, more so than participating in it in the early days, but but certainly being exposed to it around the people that were sort of doing that. So, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a massive believer that that we really learn by exposure. 
as yeah. human beings. Like we can we can read every textbook. We can, you know, it's awesome to be mentored and talk to people. But I think any level of exposure, whether it's as an outside observer or, or having the smallest part to play, right up to, to being thrown in the deep end, I think that's how we. Yeah. Well, certainly for me, that's that's how I really embed information, and 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 I find that's how things become instinctual. So, yeah, I think just being around that space and, and watching some of the activities and operations that occurred in that space, um, you know, sort of fast track that for me mentally at least. Um, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. And then I was pretty fortunate. I think twelve months in, there was a, a like a reserve spot on one of the the national response teams. Um, so back then, like post all these terrorism incidents, like, there was so many like tactical response teams all doing their different things. I think they've sort of narrowed it down now to two or three with, with different remits. But back then it was like there were these groups all over the place. And um, yeah, yeah, just through an expression of interest process, I, I landed a sort of temporary reserve role in one of those and, and did a couple of smaller operations and, and managed the to sort of maintain my spot in that, that operational deployment team nice one. over time. Yeah. And what are, what are their personalities like uh, at this stage? You know, like, um, I would imagine, like you're saying, like, you know, being the only child, just you and your mom, uh, to like, you know, uh, having squad mates and, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, post-graduation, these sort of, uh, you know, in, in these smaller specialist roles, uh, you, you develop bonds very quickly, I would imagine. What, what, what was it like, uh, you know, to be surrounded by other sort of like-minded people, uh, that, that sort of thing. I think it was initially a, a bit of a shock to my system. Like there's that, that you, you immediately hit that like alpha male testosterone environment. It's like everybody, you know, one minor task and 50 people are going to tell you how it has to be done. And yeah. you have to go through that rigmarole of arguing about who's going to, who's going to light the fire and who's going to cook the barbecue and all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> I found it really interesting because like, I just can't be bothered with that. To be honest, like, yeah. I just, like when you all finish arguing, we can have a chat about it and we'll get it done. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, I sort of just found it curious because it was like every time something had to be done, there was this like 10 minute process you had to go through of everyone trying to, you know, prove who they were before you could move on. And uh, uh, it's something that I've continued to see throughout my career, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. From, and, and from people from all demographics too, like I'm not just picking sort of young males uh, yeah. for that it, it kind of just became the culture um, which is something I kind of found interesting not having grown up with brothers and sisters and not had to argue over things and yeah, the dynamic, whatever yeah. I was, was like what are we doing why has this happened can we have you not figured out this is all pointless and we get to the end of this pretty quick and we can just move on like yeah exactly we just skip this step now that was probably the the most interesting bit for me but um you know I'd have grown up playing team sport and all that sort of thing all my life so yeah yeah um yeah it was nothing different to that yeah, that, that sort of um, like, uh, you know, bitching, moaning and like chest beating is, uh, I think, like just a common theme amongst sort of any sort yeah. of yeah, alpha style, uh, uh, you know, do dominance based uh, teamwork uh, or not teamwork, but personalities. Um, yeah. And like you said, like, you know, just let's, let's get on task. Let's figure it out and, uh, and move <laughs> forward. Um, and, and I suppose that's why, like, there's so many you know different training methodologies where they really uh, like you know, for I, I throw in the Navy SEALs because there's so much information about them. You know where they really beat you down during the Hell Week phases to to the where mm. you're you're nobody, and then and you work together to you know whatever the outcomes that you want are uh, to be concluded. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So 
were there any um because and obviously the afp they have um they not only operate in australia but in regions outside of australia as well was there any opportunity for you to go traveling uh or were you based solely uh you know in canberra or within australia as a whole so i started in canberra i transferred to melbourne um i think about 18 months in okay so i've done some time on the road and then went back and did some more training and then um I transferred to Melbourne, I think just out of a desire to to see more of the world and and you know as an opportunity working for a federal agency that you can move. So yeah, yeah. Um, when the opportunity arose, I, I took that to sort of broaden my life experience. I guess um, Canberra's a, it's not a tiny place, but you kind of know everyone within a year or two of your age group, having been through school and sport yeah. as a kid. So I thought, you know, get out and actually see the real world and, and get out of my comfort zone a little bit. Um, and that, that was a, that was a cool experience moving from a city of 400,000 people to a city of four or 5 million people. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a, a different experience. Um, I worked when I got to Melbourne, I was working in the dignitary protection unit. So mainly around sort of overseas heads of states and yeah, in the, the embassy and high commission portfolios and um, a few other things like that. So I was doing a reason amount of domestic travel um, with with particular principles that would move around um, depending on our assignments but the the international like so Operation Ramsey was on at the time which was the Solomon Islands um, mission that Australia was providing defense and an AFP to um, I think like when I first got in because you weren't eligible for it for a, a period of time after you joined I can't remember what that was but you had to have been in a certain five, amount of time before five years or something. Like yeah, that. it wasn't that long. It might have been one or two years. I can't oh, remember. Okay, it yeah. wasn't that long. Um, but then, and then I remember that was all anybody ever wanted to do was get on that mission because I think originally it was like if you did ninety-two days in country, you got tax-free pay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Mind. And so they organised. Yeah, and then they organised the deployments to be like ninety-three days. <laughs> So you weren't there that long, like yeah. three months isn't a long time to give up and you yeah. had all this money. You know? yeah. But then I think by the time I was eligible, it was it was like long postings and you didn't get the tax-free allowance anymore and right. yeah. it just didn't seem as attractive. Yeah, the, the tax man found out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but you had to do, instead of just agreeing to do 93 days and taking your money and, and experience and running, you had to do you know, X amount of deployments over X amount of time. And yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, it just sort of lost its shine a little bit. And yeah. Um, yeah, so that, yeah. that's pretty that's pretty cool. The um dignitary protection is like DPU, I'm guessing it's like alphabet soup usually in like law enforcement. Um so <laughs> yeah. that that would have uh, certainly like I mean set you up for success doing what you're doing now, which we'll go into later on. Um so what was yeah. the so how long were you uh you're in Melbourne now? Um did you just sort of stay put in Melbourne um, throughout your career as a base or were you back in Canberra? Yeah, pretty much. I um, No, I mean, I've still got family in Canberra, so I'm there regularly. But um, aside from training and stuff that was done up there, yeah. um, I was pretty much based in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, as I said, a reasonable amount of domestic travel on, on short-term tasks. Um, I did do a, uh, a fixed-term deployment to a um, joint US and Australian military base out in the desert okay, cool, yeah. uh, in, in, in central Australia. Um, so I did a period of time up there yeah. on a, a yeah, fixed term contract, um, but still essentially living in Melbourne, just uh, 
like a yeah, just fly deployed in, up there for that period of time. Oh, I think it ended up being about six months, but okay. yeah, it was sort of it was still a temporary, temporary yeah. thing. And was that just like a interoperability sort of training, like you know, skills sharing and and, and you know, going over tactics, training procedures, sort of stuff, or? Yeah, so there's a, a capability at that particular facility um, yep. that the AFP provide. So I was working on that, but yeah, it yep. was a, um, being being geographically challenging for them to get training. It was good to have sort of the, the stuff from from the city taken up there, and, and vice versa. There was a few people coming and going all the time. Yeah, on and different training stuff, and they they had a massive budget too. Yep. Um, obviously, being partly US facility, so you know things like yeah. I don't get into too much detail about it, but there, there was things there that you could train with and, and play with that weren't available. Yeah, all, everywhere. All the fun so. toys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some cool capabilities. And uh, this was uh, so time period wise. Is this what like 2003 ish, 2004? Um, no, a little bit later would be like 2007 ish. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. eight eight years uh, after you joined, roughly. Uh, no, no. So, so when did I join? I joined like oh, I think it was the beginning of oh four. Okay, right. Yeah, and then um, got out in about two thousand ten. Yeah, yeah. What was the uh, what was the sort of decision making process like when you were looking to leave? What what was, what, what prompted it, or was there anything specific, or you just wanted um, to do something different? I think it was a process. Like it wasn't one specific thing, but it was a specific process. So. You know, I think by then I was still young and I looked at guys that were 45-year veterans and went, like, I don't know if I want that to be me. I don't know if, if that's my path. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, absolute respect for people that, that are career law enforcement, absolutely. Yeah. But I just wasn't sure that that was my, my thing to do the same thing. Yeah, as you said, it's such a broad space. There's so many opportunities, but at the same time, you're also never guaranteed to get the opportunities you want. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, like I, I know one person that joined with me that, that was on the same fraud investigation for like seven years. Yeah. You know, this this global thing, and they like they'd never made an arrest, they'd never done anything in their career. Yeah. Other get, than that one you get very comfortable because it's such a it's so secure that like you could you could say you know in the one job for 30 years if you wanted to really um yeah. you know like if, if you and, and and that's great for people who like enjoy what they do but for for uh, for those that want to move around a bit and then if you're not getting the spots that you you know that you've applied for and there's all sorts of reasons why you might not be some of it might be you know like a political type thing uh some of it might be uh just not building the right sort of networking um but yeah. it, i would imagine yeah, it does get, it could get frustrating for, for, for those sorts of people um yeah so just it was just a, one of those things where you're like look it might be time to move on sort of situation i started talking to people about it i think it's it's that thing like once you see behind the curtain yeah of the thing you know it, it's not always what it appears from the outside so right. you know you realize pretty quick like when i joined there was that idealistic notion of like you know, here I am to save the world and, and this is what I'm here to do and every day I'm going to make a difference and whatever. And then you realize, ah, this is just the government department doing what the government departments do. And, you know, there's some awesome stuff, don't get me wrong, but, you know, not every day is as cool as I thought it might be. And, yeah. um, you know, there's pros and cons to everything, obviously. And I, I started talking to a few people that I respected about, um, you know, about their careers and whatever. And I had massively varying advice, obviously, from 
Um, I, I think a catalyst was like I had a, a very small part to play in, in um, the Pope's visit okay. in, in like 2008 or nine. something. We had a small section that my team was involved in. I remember thinking, you know, here we are providing protection to the potentially the highest profile person in the world. Yeah. And after all the planning and operations and logistics to get there and, and make it all happen, I remember just thinking, well, pretty tired, hungry, cold. Not actually that interesting. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's yeah. not that you want something to happen, and, and not that I was trying to be spoiled about opportunities, but I just remember thinking, if this is the pinnacle, yeah, like I, I might not ever do anything this high profile again. Yeah, and I'm here, and it's not lighting up the board. Like, it, it's it's okay. awesome, but I've done it now. Do I need to do it again twenty times? Yeah, but like, uh, I, I anti climactic sort of uh, experience where. It, 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 you speak to a lot of people like that, like where you've trained up so much and you've developed this, you know, skill set. You're really honing it in. You never, obviously, want it to go off where you're having to use it. But yeah, it's like if you keep repeating that process, it's uh, you know, it, it is a bit um, demoralizing at times. Um, so yeah, it, I think it just made me sort of think outside the box. Like yeah, I hadn't really considered it again till then because, as you say, it's super secure and you just you do what you do. And and, and don't get me wrong, like so much of it was awesome. Yeah. Um, but it just made me think, is this what I want to do repeatedly for, you know, I've been here for six years, do I want to do this for 36 years or 46 years? Like, yeah. I, I, I'm not, I, I think I knew straight away I'm not somebody that was ever going to go to the high echelons of command because I don't really like politics or, or playing those sort of the games. Like I was never going to not be operational. So yeah. even financially, you know, it's not like I was ever going to be on 300 grand a year as a assistant commissioner. It was only ever going to be that government salary. Yeah, that's at like right. senior sergeant level or whatever. So, um, yeah. you know, it's the best case scenario. So, I think that's just when I started thinking. And then I remember talking to a guy that had been there for thirty years or something, and sort of a gnarly old guy. And he he yelled at me when I said I'm thinking about leaving. He goes, he goes, mate, you have got a guaranteed hundred grand a year for life here. How could <laughs> you think about leaving? And I went, that's it. Yeah, absolutely right. Like, don't get me wrong. For so many people in the world, being guaranteed 100 grand a year is amazing. Yeah. And it is like I wasn't being spoiled, but I thought I'm also capped at that. Yeah. Like I'm, it, you're seeing it as like a, you know, this is the benchmark like to a reach. floor, but I'm seeing it yeah. as a ceiling. Like, yeah. you know, like why is that a limiting thing? And not that I suddenly thought I'd get out and make millions. Like I didn't think that at the time that I, that, that was guaranteed or anything, but I just thought, like, man, you've made it seem so like narrow yeah what i'm going to be doing and, and i looked at him and thought oh, i don't know that i want to end up being you no disrespect to him like, great <laughs> yeah. guy and he loved what he did and he loved his career but i just yeah. thought i don't think that's necessarily for me you know and what what's what was the uh like offboarding process like was it quite simple um i, re I remember when i when i left uh vic Paul, it's, it's actually really good now like you, you can register into the police registrations board and um, they basically keep your file. So if you ever want to come back, you know, it's it's almost like a reactivation of that file. What, what, did did, sure. uh, did FedPol have something similar to that? Or the, sorry, the AP has something similar to that? Yeah, I think I think once you get out, I think there's like a two-year window where you can go back pretty easily. Um, but I think I knew that's not – I think I knew straight away it wasn't that kind of process. Like I wasn't interested in a safety net or – yeah. like I think I knew once you, once you do that and – you know, I was reasonably happy in the position I was in there, but you know, you no guarantee what you go back to when you get back in. Obviously, I, I don't think I ever really considered that as a 
a factor. Yeah, like the fallback. Um, well, I think they've got opportunities. Like, you probably could have taken a, a year's leave without pay and gotten explored things. But I think I just... Yeah. I, I don't think I could have mentally gone back thinking that I'd tried something and, and it didn't work, so I'll just go back to what I don't... I think I would have ended up leaving again. Yeah. Pretty quickly anyway, to be honest. It, it almost like a, it, having that sort of safety net might not have, uh, you know, maybe spurred you into a direction that you put your everything into, kind of. Um, what was the yeah. what was the first uh, you know first thing you did when you left? Like, uh, what sort of jobs did you go after, or did you have a bit of time off? Um, <laughs> I didn't have much time off. I actually, um, from my time up in the uh, in Central Australia, I made a lot of connections up there. So my first job was actually back there. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I sort of, you know, another real life experience to go live out in a tiny town in the desert and. Um, I think it's about 30,000 people. Yeah. Um, you know, so super self-sufficient and super... Again, like I've gone from, you know, very comfortable, easy childhood to a very comfortable government job. Everything was sort of always pretty easy and comfortable. Um, yeah. yeah, I thought, you know, let's actually go yeah. see something that's not so comfortable. And, and yeah. That sense of adventure. What would you... Because um, I get a lot of not a lot i'm not like an influencer or anything like that but um i get a, a questions every now and then from um other sort of like cops who want to leave um and, and one of the things I, I say to them is like when you're in the job it's uh you don't tend to network like you do in the private sector because mm-hmm. for whatever reason you, you know there's this sort of kind of scaremongering maybe at the academy where they say you have to have a really limited social media profile you know don't have this and don't have that i'm like you're never really doing anything that's secretive that's life-threatening really like you know if you're on linkedin you're going to be okay i think um but well, like, you're a public servant anyway right so your name's on your your badge every day it's like exactly you, go down you don't to, have the right to hide your identity so yeah if, if, you, if you're going down yeah. you know to uh to the, the, the court role you know like all that information is on the on the court role uh you know you can you can look them up pretty easily so i always mm-hmm. say like my thing in hindsight now i wish i'd done a lot more networking when i was in the job um, just to yeah. sort of have that base of connections when I left. Um, what is that something you would um, sort of reciprocate? Like, or like, would you, um, yeah, any sort of tips for, for folks looking to leave? Um, and, and, you know, in hindsight or, or with your experience, what, uh, what you would have done different? I think we're really not good. Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a closed culture in law enforcement, I think, in the military as well. Um, you know, and I think that's probably necessary to some degree, like in that team environment, in a charged environment, you know, you are there to have each other's back. There has to be that sense of loyalty and, and commitment. Yeah. Um, but I think we we do close that that door on on anybody looking outside or even, you know, I, I, I know when I brought it up with colleagues, they were like, well, well, fuck off then. You know, you yeah. brought it up. Well, that's it. And I was like, hang on, surely I'm allowed to... Yeah, consider explore, my own life, you know. Explore like, other options, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think we're not good at it. And I think, like, the the military in Australia is getting a little bit better with some, some agencies that provide that, that transition pathway and maybe some advice and support. I think they're getting better at it. I don't think they're good at it. I don't think we're anywhere near where we should be. Yeah. Uh, and I think law enforcement's probably nowhere. You know, I don't even think they're exploring that, that kind yeah. of path. I think there should be, like, advertised options with with career counselling of you can have a year off without pay and, and go and explore these things and what do we need to do to get here if that's your interest. Yeah. And I think that's so relevant when we talk about 
and and again we're so bad at this we're only just starting to to really even pretend to play in the space of, of like PTSD and, and yeah. things like that people sometimes people need to move on to their own mental health and they don't know it and they're not going to know it because they're not in the right space to think about it well they don't know that there's any other option if this is all they've done for 20 years yeah you know and, and we just keep pushing them to to stay in it you know we've had quite a few police member suicides in australia in the last couple of years and, and like shatteringly on duty i mean yeah. like not just police members suiciding but like actually on duty that that's to me is like such a cry for help yeah across I, um... every police force it's not one police force it's not one group it's it's, it's just like if that's happening that's so unacceptable yeah how are we not doing more to to show people that there's more out there if they're if people are feeling so awful about where they're at today, how we don't say, okay, tomorrow doesn't have to be the same. Yeah. And, and I honestly think it's just government laziness. I think the bureaucratic process gets in the way and it's like, well, it's not, a, you know, you're a cop, do your job and until you don't do your job and then we'll take you off the list and we'll replace you. That's yeah. not good enough. Yeah, I think um, um, like there's a lot of like just tick boxing, like they, they put you know programs in like, you know, um, care days and all that sort of stuff and mm-hmm. but at the end of the day it's like you're in a job where if you're if you're operational you know you, you require a, a firearm or in, in australia certainly um mm-hmm. and so like you don't half the time you don't want to speak up because you get that taken away you're not operational anymore you're not part of the team you're not part of you know and, and it just it's a snowball effect um like anecdotally mm-hmm. for me um uh, you know you mentioning suicides on the job um one of the first sort of semi-critical incidents I went to was in the AFP building in, in, in Melbourne where a, um, a, a female um, uh, officer um, yeah, completed suicide in, in one of the bathrooms in, in the office. Um, and yeah, it was just like, you know, that was a tangible right then and there that I, you know, saw first-hand accounts, but the statistics are, you know, unreal. And so, you know, anyone listening, obviously, um, you know, reach out to, you know, whoever you want to reach out to, but make sure that you talk about things um, I think it's becoming more normal now, but like you said, in certain professions, especially in law enforcement and the military, it's still very, uh, very stigmatized. Um, but you know, being better uh, is as shallow as that may seem, as you know, me saying that. But um, there are support services out there. So if anyone's listening in and you're, you know, feeling in that sort of dark space, uh, just certainly reach out. Uh, hell, send me a message. You know, write to me. I'm always, yeah. I'm always up for a chat. Um, and so yeah, it makes, I, I think. That, that was going to transition to my next point because we do yeah. that. We're so insular in that environment. And and there's a reason for that too. Like uh, you, you go to a barbecue as a cop and you've just been to some horrible critical incident the day before and you get there and everyone else is a, a sparky or an accountant or, a, or whatever. And, and their conversations, you, you can't talk about your work in the same way that everyone yeah. else can. It's not always, you know, just for your own emotional thing. It's like, you don't want to just keep going over your work every time you, you're in a social setting. Um, but that leads us to then only hang out with other cops. Yeah, exactly. Because they get it, right? So like, oh, you're doing shit. And yeah, the other thing is like shift work. Yeah. Like you're off on a Tuesday, Wednesday, everyone else is at work. Who are you going to hang out with? The yeah. only other people who shift workers, the only shift workers you know are probably cops. Yeah. yeah. So you go yeah. hang out with other cops, right? And and so that makes it even harder to get perspective on on how you're feeling about a thing or, or where, where your life is or, or, or anything. And I think... That would be my my biggest comment is like break that cycle. It's not like it's fine to have heaps of police friends and have a super close knit team 
you know, in that space, but have some perspective, like have people that aren't and take that time to switch off and, and see the world that isn't just through that police lens, which you have to do a work. You have to see the world through a certain lens in that environment. But that comes with, you know, maybe trusting people less or, you know, all those other factors that come with that because of the nature of the job. But yeah, it's not good for you. I don't think it's good for you long term. So I think have some friends and, and you know, force connections, even personally outside the job, um, but absolutely professionally too, because there is other worlds, there is other things and some things are a lot easier than people might think they are to move into. Other things are going to be harder than people think they are. Yeah, to, in in that transition, like transition from government to to private industry is difficult, or you know, it's 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 got its own process. But unlike an expression of interest in the government, where you put it in and it gets escalated, and, and maybe you get it in, in the private world, it's just about you. Yeah, like nobody's putting out an EOI. There's no, there's no person coaching you through it. There's no, you know, guideline two point seven on how to fill it out. Yeah, it's exactly. like. Yeah, you're you're selling You've your brand. You've got to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Lot, and you don't uh, have a brand because all you can go is I'm senior constable, whoever from wherever station. Yeah, I look at like I look at that. I go like I meet military and police members all the time. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're a cop. Okay, yeah, you're in the army. Yeah, I understand immediately. There's a million transferable skills, and that you, you've seen stuff and you've done things, and that's that's amazing. Yeah, but in my head, it's like, okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, but I don't get your story, like as an individual. It doesn't do enough to just say I was a cop or I was a soldier. It's yeah. like I need your story. And you in the government, as you said, we don't talk about it. You don't post what you do. You don't you don't share that that sort of stuff. And and we lose that opportunity. We're not good at like I was terrible at branding when I first went out on my own. I was yeah. so bad at it. I didn't want to talk to anybody. It was like everything was just uh, no comment. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> no, yeah. you gotta promote the company now. You can't just yeah, it's so, yeah. so maintain those connections professionally and personally outside of your bubble. You know, yeah, the, the world's bigger than that. Yeah, you, you certainly fall into like that subculture of law enforcement or subculture of military or, um, you know, emergency services. And like, yeah, certainly you forget the, the whole work life balance includes a life at the end of it, you know. Um, and like you said, like, great to have tight knit friends in the job, but, um, you, you do. One of my favorite things is I had, I had heaps of friends sort of outside of the job that. You, you stop sort of seeing uh, regularly because, you know, you're like, oh, you're bitching and moaning about, you know, not having, uh, you know, the, 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 the PowerPoint went off or something. And meanwhile, you know, two hours ago, I was there holding this woman's <laughs> head, you know, it was split open because her partner, you know, attacked her or yeah. whatever. And so I'm like that, that perspective, but it was, it was almost refreshing sometimes just hearing somebody else's, you know, issues. Um, but what I found was that like, um, one of those transferable skills that you, that you talk about certainly for, for me was like project management, for instance, you know, it's something that like, it, it's such a fancy sort of title, but all you're doing as a, as a general duties police officer, and when you go into a, a scene is project management, like, you know, it's, it's little things like that, that you find um, along the way, mm -hmm. but it's just reframing the certain, you know, verbiage or jargon that you have in the police or the military to the private sector. Um, yeah, so yeah, and identifying, so, like you've just identified, it. you've identified when you turn up to a scene, you're project managing, you're risk managing, you're safety managing, you're going through so many different things in that live dynamic moment. Yeah, you know, you haven't got three months to sit down and write a risk management plan for this 
this crisis. Like you're just doing it and you are doing all those things. Yeah. But it's knowing to identify, hey, what I just did was blah. And and here, now I can document that. And now I can tell people that I do that, you know, and and then identifying your own skills and weaknesses of like, I am really good at project management, not so good at risk management. Okay, cool. Where Where does that take me now, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so you having to find that out um, yourself, you know, you're, you're now sort of, you're not part of this organization anymore. You're, you're effectively like a, like a singleton really. Um, wh- yep. How did you like, what was, what were your first steps? Like, uh, did you set up a company straight away? Did you, um, you, you, you said you went to central Australia for, for the sort of jobs, but what was the, you know, what was it like after that? Yeah. So I just worked, um, I just worked in the industry for, for about three years. Um, you know, and some management roles and some pretty exciting response roles, um, sort of pseudo government stuff um, that was reasonably interesting. But I did, I did get a bit of a shock. Like, I mean, straight up pay dropped yeah. initially because I didn't have a corporate career to, to to justify the highest pays off the bat. So that was a bit of a surprise, I guess. Like, yeah, never really had to think about money too much in 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 the police. Yeah. Um, coming out it was like oh, okay you gotta negotiate pays and you gotta <laughs> actually ask for bonuses and you don't get like everything supplied to you you gotta go buy your own stuff like, yeah okay and, and that pay um, might not be as consistent it's not every month or every fortnight you know like it's a it, it might be a good amount one month and not so much the next yeah. month yeah yeah and there's not just like you know you can't just put your name down on the overtime register and <laughs> pick up extra yeah. money because your car is due or whatever you know like, there's always you know that, that it was an interesting transition like because there were things that that didn't seem as good about it, like there wasn't that guarantee and that security and that that whatever, and it wasn't just like again, you turn up in the police, like say you turn up to work with a member you've never met before, you turn up, you identify each other via uniform, your rank, your, your your badge number, whatever it might be, and you go, okay, we're we're good. I can yeah. see that you are one of me, yeah. So we'll be fine, you know. Whereas in private, there's none of that either. It's like you walk into a room full of people, and you're like, okay. I don't know how this, like, I don't know if we're going to work well together or if this is yeah. going to work or yeah. if, if this will be successful or whatever, because it's, you know, there isn't that paramilitary rank structure and, and demand for following those processes. So it was interesting, but at the same time, it was a sense of freedom to make your own decisions. Cause like how many times in government do you go, oh, I can't believe they're making us do this. This is the stupidest way to do a thing, or this is the biggest waste of time and money. How many times cops sit around and go, if they just knew what I know, we could do yeah. this better or quicker or yeah, whatever. But it was cool to actually be able to do that then. It was like, no, we're not going to do it that way. And I don't have to write 16 reports up to a commander who's not going to listen. Yeah. I can just say, hey, we're going to do this now. Um, so there was like a massive sense of freedom in that respect. And I think there was also a massive sense of freedom to me when I realized you could just genuinely be promoted or or recognized or rewarded um on your merits like all the time you didn't just have to go through a generic you know promotion process that to get a thing in the end and and as as you touched on before it can be super political it could be down to you know um like we know in in australian police forces they have quotas on certain demographics that, that they tick it could be geographical it could be a million things that yeah you're going through a very sterile process to maybe get something at the end. Whereas like in private industry, I realized if you 
if you're awesome and you do really good things, then it's rewarded like almost straight away. Yeah. And then there's that incentive to keep being awesome as opposed to just going, well, turn up and do my job and you'll pay me the same either way. So yeah. Whether I do it well or, or not so well, you know. With that sort of freedom that, you know, like the, the merit recognition, did, did you also find like maybe um, the sense of ownership was like, was, uh, was far more um, sort of uh, tangible than in the police? Cause that's, that's what I found. Like everything that you do um, in the private sector, I find that it's like a, there's no one else doing it. So it's, you know, it's, it's mm. yours, it's your baby alone until mm. you get on to, you know, potentially a team or, you know, you start up a company with other people. But up to that point, it's, you know, there's no one else you fall back. You don't have a partner that you go, oh, yeah, uh, you know, mm. you pick up the slack here. Um, certainly not when you're when you're alone doing it. Um, yeah, did, was it, yeah, did you, that sense of reward, was it there yet? Or um, were you still developing that? It was a double-edged sword. I think I, I think my very first feeling when I got out, I was working around, my first job was working around a lot of money. Yeah. And I remember thinking, there was no sense of pride in just protecting some rich guy's money. Right. Like at least when I was in the police, I could, I could have that idealistic notion that, you know, I'm there for the community or I'm there for the country or I'm there, you know, whatever you could, you could remind yourself that you had that, yeah, that element. Whereas guy got out and I was like, some rich guy's going to pay me to look after his crap. Like, <laughs> I don't care. There's no, yeah. Like I'm literally here for the paycheck because, and, and my own sense of pride in doing a good job, but yeah. I struggled, I think, very initially with the idea of like, well, who cares? If this guy loses all his money, the world doesn't stop. Probably yeah. won't even make the news for more than three minutes. No one actually cares. It doesn't, it's not achieving anything, you know? And I, I struggled with that, I think, initially. And then I realized kind of that's all we're doing wherever we are, right? Like somebody chose a priority, even the government. The government chose a priority to we're going to set up task force, whatever, and target whatever, whether, the, whether that was right or wrong. Yeah. is irrelevant. Somebody chose a thing and, and you went and did it on their behalf. It's no different now. Um, yeah, and it's just the real world, right? So I think swallowing that idealistic notion um, was there. I, I did really like the freedom of, you know, you wanted to go on a course. If you could pay for it, you went and did it. There was no, it's not your turn yet or maybe next year or we can't release you from the station this month or yeah. any of that. It was like, I'll just go do what I do and and get better still. and get better and I can yeah yeah I, I enjoyed that and I think um, although it must have been I must have missed it enough I think I missed that that sharp end element I missed that like ability to because this was like that was my first time out in the private sector really as a, a proper adult yeah um, I think I missed too much that element of of that opportunity to to save the day, that opportunity to do something truly sharp and truly brilliant, truly meaningful. Yeah. Um, which, you know, in hindsight, I was doing all that anyway. It was just in my head that you couldn't do that without a government uniform on. Yeah. Because it's the army or the police that go save people. And, and I think, you know, looking back, I was probably contributing way more to the world in some of the private roles that I had, but I just didn't think you could do it. I don't know, maybe it was a recognition thing. Like, yeah, I was working like for a private security firm at the time, but we were doing some pretty unique stuff out in, in remote indigenous communities and a few things like that. And I was like, yeah, I think I just didn't think that you could be doing good without that government 
badge because, and I only say that now in hindsight because um, my next step was to to seek sort of tactical law enforcement opportunities. Um, so after a couple of years away in private sector, I actually joined the government again and, and went into corrections yeah. with the sole intention of emergency response groups and and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know what I must have thought there was something missing. I don't think I identified it immediately at the time and knew what I was chasing, but. I think I must have thought, yeah, I wanted that 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 crack again at that sharp end yeah. sort of work. But then funnily enough, I went and did that and immediately went, ah, I remember all the things that all the why I didn't do this. I immediately <laughs> went, What did I do? I know now why I didn't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And I just signed up to do it again. Like Yeah. It, yeah. And uh, uh, in a way, it was good to put it to bed for me because that was it. Like, I, I did that for a couple of years and didn't really enjoy any of it. And yeah, just spent every day remembering why I didn't want to do it anymore. And, <laughs> and I left. But, but, but I, you know, I needed to do it. I think probably in hindsight, I needed to do it to, to put that nail in the coffin and go, that's it. That's not for me. And, and now I know I've done a few government contracting roles now um, since I've been either when I was freelancing or, or in my time in, in my company now, I've done some government projects and every time I walk in the door, I just go, oh, i got to stop doing these. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> yeah. just not for me. Like, it's yeah. just not my, yeah, this doesn't suit me. It's like that, um, like the pace of development, I think in the in the private sector, there's just like, like you said, because it's, you're, you're kind of constricted with budget, with, um, you know, someone up top having an ideal of where they want the organization to go. And you're, you're, you're kind of constricted by other people's dreams, really, or maybe not dreams, mm. but other people's career paths. And then you go private, mm. um, certainly if you set up your own shop, you, you know, the, the sky's the limit, you do what you want. Um, you know, an example for instance, like in the US, like where, you know, the space program has gone to the you know, private sector for, for tender mm-hmm. and then SpaceX has, you know, this and then Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos company has another thing. But like the, the, the rapid increase of, of performance is just, you know, it's, it's, it's astronomical. And, and, and that's the, the beauty of the private sector, I think. Um, but, you know, they, they, they both should work hand in hand, obviously. What was the, um, the decision making to, yeah, to go, go through the Empire Protection? Um, you know, you, you just touched on it then, your company, um, you're, you and Ryan uh, obviously are in charge of at the moment. So I did. I did that extra thing in corrections. Um, really, just it was one like one day I'd wake up and go, "I've got. I'm so charged. I've got to do everything I can to create my own world because I hate this so much." And then the next day I'd be like, oh, "I hate this so much. I can't be bothered doing anything else. Like, yeah, <laughs> I've just got no energy for the world because I just don't want to do this anymore." And you know, it was a pretty crap space to be in. Um, and I, I literally remember. It was kind of like that. Oh, there's a movie I can't quite think of the name of it now. It's like an '80s terrible movie, and he goes, "He goes, oh, I'm not going to come back to work anymore." Right. And he goes, "I oh, see so quitting." He goes, "No, I don't, I don't know. I'm just not going to do this anymore." And that's kind of what I, I felt. I was like, I just sat there one day. Went, you know what? I don't have any desire to keep coming and doing this every day. And, and somebody literally said, "Oh, so you're going to quit?" And I was like, "I, I haven't." I don't even know that I've gone that far in the process. <laughs> yeah. I just know I'm not doing this anymore. And they said, well, so that sounds like you're quitting. I went, okay, I quit then. So I literally, in that moment, was like, I'll just pull the trigger. Yeah. Here's my month's notice. 
see you later. And I, I didn't really have a plan, but I kind of thought that would force me to do things quicker by not having a plan. Because if you wait for that perfect moment yeah. to leave your, your government job, it never comes. So I was like, oh, I'll just make it happen. Um, so I went out freelancing uh, into the CP circuit um, and that sort of higher end security circuit. And what we were talking about before, I got a shock because I thought my CV, my resume, my experience would stand alone. I thought I could go, here's all the things I've done. You know, at this point, I'm like 30, so I'm still pretty young. I'm still, you know, in good shape. I'm still, here's all my skills. And and nobody cared whatsoever because yeah. <laughs> I didn't know any of the right people. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I'd never worked in private industry in, in Victoria and in, in Melbourne. Um, and here I was turning up saying everybody should hire me. And they were like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I realized so quickly that none of the good jobs are advertised. You know, they're all just connections of connections and they they go out on closed circle groups and yeah. you know they're, they're word of mouth jobs through the right right people and I didn't have any of those connections so it was like an immediate wake up call I was just doing shit work to pay the bills for like six months because I just didn't know where that good stuff was and and, yeah. and I wasn't doing the right things to put myself in the right places yeah. to get that so I just had to go out and do six months of sort of industry work to to build those networks and to get those connections and um, be able to play in that world. And it, I guess it just grew from there um, over probably a two-year period freelancing. So I, I just literally set up my own like sole trader company um, and I'd just put my name out on things and whoever filled the spot in the calendar first, I'd do that job. So yeah. sometimes it was longer term, sometimes it was short term, but um, yeah, that's kind of how I was, I was doing it. And I'd, over a couple of years, I built my way up to working for some some global companies and some some big firms on some high profile jobs and whatever. And I think there was probably a very short amount of time where I thought that was the pinnacle. Like now, I'm working for some of the world's most famous people for the world's biggest companies, and yeah, maybe this is the pinnacle now. Like, yeah. And then I was, like I don't know how to say this without sounding arrogant, and I I just don't mean it to come out that way, but what originally excited me going, oh, I'm working for the world's biggest companies. They've got experts in this and that. They're, they're the industry leaders in this. And they were getting so much wrong. <laughs> like so much wrong. Yeah. And I struggled with this idea that like you're the best. And it's not just my opinion. Like the client's not happy. Yeah. Other staff aren't happy. The principal's not happy. I'm not happy. Like yeah. it's not just like what's going it's on my here. view of it. Like this is not working. Yeah. And they're going, yeah, but we're the best. I'm like, how can you say that if you're wrong so much of the time? Like, <laughs> you don't have client satisfaction. You're not doing things properly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was the time I just thought I just have to do this myself. Like, for my own sanity, like, I'm not going to be comfortable de- delivering a, a shitty product yeah. on behalf of somebody else. And then there was times where clients were actually, this kind of how it evolved, clients would call and say, can we have you and your team, but not that company that yeah. we that we worked through. Right, yeah. And so originally, because of our very strict compliance over here, we would have to go find a company to provide the licensing and the insurance and all those sort of things to work under their brand to make it legitimate. Yeah. But then they would take the lion's share of the money. Because like, I've brought you the client, I've brought you the team, I'm doing all the work. Why are you getting yeah. 60% of the money? That does like, yeah. seems ludicrous. And they were because we've invested money in all these things and we're taking the risk and we've got the infrastructure. And we're like, okay, yep, 
sounds fair. So I'll just go do that. Um, and so originally I licensed the company, I guess it's just a vehicle for myself and my freelance network to do jobs through without having to go through these third parties. Right. So I went and set the whole company up, did all the compliance, got ready to, to roll and just sort of said, okay, boys, if you get work, you can run it through this now instead of having to, to do it through these other people. And then like, it just grew, it just grew organically like so much quicker than I ever expected it to. I didn't at that point, I haven't really had any intent to sit and scale it or, or, you know, really push to be something specific. Yeah. Um, but we just got these amazing clients that had high profiles that, that built our corporate resume so quickly. Yeah. Um, and it was honestly just those little cultural things that, that we did that I guess bigger companies, you know, didn't have that personal touch. Like some of the stuff, the, the feed, the successful feedback was like minor, minor things yeah. that you'd think, I can't believe that got us repeat business, but just caring, just showing that you, you know, you're, you're actually dedicated to your client, not just your client's not just another job that day yeah. or that week or that month, you know? Yeah. It was pretty basic stuff to be honest. And, and, don't get me wrong, like it was a long process, it was a hard process, there was sleepless nights about where the next contract was coming from, all those sort of things. It's not easy going into small business. But the success part kind of was easy because it was just doing what we do, how we wanted to do it, and it was successful. Yeah. So we didn't have to sit and product test and 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 develop. Yeah, you know, we're always developing, don't get me wrong about that, but we didn't have to go through like a trial and error period of because we're the product like it's a service business so we are the product yeah but we didn't have to like we've never lost a client we didn't have to go through a process of oh they don't like that that let's revisit it let's, yeah let's change that what do we do for the like we just haven't had to do that because we've never lost a client we've yeah. never had any significantly negative feedback from anybody um so we kind of just write policies on in reverse we we do things we go, yeah, they love that. That went well. That was their instinct to, to do it that way. And then they loved it. Let's write a policy that says that's what we do yeah. every time now. Um, yeah, so we sort of built it from ground up. We, we wrote all our policies and procedures from scratch to reflect how we wanted to do things and, and, and how we do do things. And I think because we still operate, like as the company owners, uh, we still operate as, as often as we can. You know, we're still current. We're still seeing what works. We, we still... There's not that disconnect between management and, and yeah. boots on the ground where we've said, you know, here's your budget or here's your resourcing, and they go, that's unacceptable. Yeah, We know what that looks like because I'm there doing it too. And, and you know, we've got to put pays up if we've got to resource things better, if we've got to change how we, how we do. It's like, yeah, I mean, apologies, I'm covering a million sort of fields at once, but like tiny things, you know, when I worked for other companies, like, they'd send me away for work and it was uncomfortable. Like they wouldn't book convenient flights. You'd have terrible hotels. The logistics were all wrong. You'd spend your whole life making up, you know, fixing problems and, and organizing logistics. And it's like pretty simple. If you're going to send me away from my family for a week for your gain, yeah, like make it okay make it for me, you know? Exactly. Like that's, we, we just one thing we took away when we send guys away, we make it as comfortable as we can possibly make it within the bounds of finance, you know, we're not staying in presidential suites, but yeah, you know, we, we take the care to look after people, acknowledge that they're sacrificing for us and yeah. And what you know, it's a 
it's small steps. Yeah, there's a few things there. Obviously, I think um, so. The fir- first one was obviously uh, with the bigger companies, you know, thinking and, and, and world-renowned companies. I feel like a lot of uh, those sorts of uh, profiles they they sort of ride on the coattails of the previous you know generations or the the the, the name brand of the actual company mm-hmm. rather than like you were saying, if you stop sort of developing yourself, stop doing the R and Ds, the the product testing, which in, in a manpower industry, you are the product. If you start, you know, believing that you are the shit, you know, basically, um, you know, you, you might start isolating yourself. And so that, that more, um, I don't know what the word is, maybe like more bespoke element of like you were describing where, you know, you're, you understanding the, the client's needs or the principal's needs and you're tailoring each job, each task, you know, specifically for that person. Um, mm-hmm. was that sort of a, like a gap maybe that you saw in, in Australia specifically, like w- w- were there many companies that did that? Like, or was it just a, let's just get the jobs, allocate men to it or, you know, uh, guys and gals to yeah. it, um, and not be so much more but, bespoke or tailored. I think there was one or two that tried to be bespoke and they tried to, you know, certainly sold themselves that way. Um, but it was through nothing they did. It was through the good people they had in their operational teams below the management that, right. you know, if that was successful, it was because of the teams. Yeah. Um, you know, there was nothing at that company level making it successful. I mean, there's obviously big companies have got advantages in things in resourcing. They, you know, they might have Intel teams and, and, and global um, operation centers and, and yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Like, so from a resourcing perspective, that's great. Um, but if it's not used well and it's not, you know, it's of no benefit. And yeah. and if you don't get the little things right, then those big things are, are no good. So it could be simple things like, you know, we're, we're a huge believer that on a close protection task, an advance is the most or one of the most critical elements of the, of the job. Yeah. Sometimes we put more time into the advance than the job actually takes to do um, because that's where you, you set the foundation of success. But, you know, they'd be like, oh, do we have to pay for that? All right, you can have four hours. Yeah. You know, what, how do I do that? You know, like, we've got to build these connections. So now, like, I'll spend hours on the phone trying to get a connection at an airport that will get me airside so I can pick up at the at the plane door or whatever it is, you know, like, yeah, those things, you build those connections and you can deliver that. That's success. Like, yeah, that, that kind of stuff gets repeat business. That kind of stuff, you know, it is safer. It is better service. It is a better product but it makes you look good and it makes you memorable. Yeah. Like just securing a car space somewhere so the client doesn't get wet, you know, anything like. Yeah, that's that seamless, like, that, yeah, sort of service, I, I think is is, uh, is is key really. Like where, they, you know, you're, you're sort of like a, a duck sort of paddling, uh, you know, you're, you're paddling under the water, but what they see is just calm and professional, but there's a lot yeah. of work like, and, and could you explain actually, because there's a lot of people who are listening to this who aren't in the security industry or in close protection, Ooh. but what, what an advance is? Oh, so, I mean, I guess in its form, it's going out and understanding the space you're about to be operating in. So having a look at a hotel, you're going to be staying in driving routes that you might be planning to take and, and looking at the security environment or looking at the environment from a security perspective um, just to understand where you want to operate. But that's kind of a core level thing. Yeah. We we try and take our experience from working around uh, event managers, facilities managers, you know, HSE teams, local security teams, 
butlers, concierges, chauffeur drivers, like we're kind of all of those in one. Yeah. You know, if, if your client's going to take you to a dinner that costs, you know, $4,000 a plate and you can't eat and, and, and have the manners and the, the presentation that would be expected by that group, then, yeah. you know, they're not going to take you to those dinners anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're not going to get the work and then whatever, if you, you know, you overhear your client when they get off the plane talking about how they love steak, then the first text goes out to the to someone in the team, find the best steak restaurants within 10 miles of, of whatever hotel, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that it- might mean going to talk to concierges and butlers, like connecting, getting all that together so that when he later says, I need a good steak, we can go, here's your three choices. Yeah. Or, you know, we, we can advance those. We can go and understand those spaces. We can select them from our perspective a little bit about what what we think is a safe place for them to go as well as, you know, who's going to allow us to organize a private space, yeah, whatever. But as you said, they don't see that. No. They'll have no idea that you made 37 phone calls to get yeah. them a private reservation at a restaurant. Yeah. But, you know. But what they do see is when that's not done, though, and people are flapping going, oh, where, where, where can we get steak or, you know, whatever the thing is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I find that, like, even uh, as, you know, something as simple as getting to a, you know, an advanced party on the team, getting to a restaurant before you do just getting the table uh, organized, uh, not only for them in terms of the aesthetics of it and the actual social experience of it, but as a security team, you know exactly the dynamics of that table you've selected, you know, little, little things like that, which, mm-hmm. um, which yeah, like would you know, yeah. tend to maybe get overlooked by other companies, I would imagine. Um, and then the other thing you were discussing there was about, you know, like the, the conditions that you had the guys working for you, guys and gals working for you. Um, so th- that to me, you know, being in a position where you're in, you know, sort of you're in charge of the company, it's your company, but having that boots on the ground uh, exposure constantly, that, that sort of like that people compare leadership and management and where, you know, leaders will, will go out and do the stuff that they tell you to do as well. Mm-hmm. Managers will just sort of from a distance from the ivory tower, just, you know, poke at a task, go do it. They don't really care. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that sort of, I think in the industry, the, the, there's, there's so many different characters. There's so many companies out there. Um, and, and much like the police and the military, where I, th- I think traditionally there was a lot of leadership, but then it's sort of become this management kind of, you know, mm. uh, entity. Um, in your experience, uh, you know, are, are there, had you worked for other companies with, with good leadership that you took, you know, certain values from? Uh, that you implemented into Empire or um, was it mainly a case of like the ones that you worked for was was that sort of management style instead of leadership style? I think we're always learning from everybody that we that we ever work with or for and and whether you learn what you do want to do or what you don't want to do, yeah, you, you learn that from people. So I, I think I am just a makeup of 155 different people that I've worked with where I go, man, I love the way that particular person does that one particular thing. I'm going to steal that and use it for myself. Why reinvent the wheel? That's like, that works 90% of the time. I'll just steal that from you. Or I hate when you do that. Everybody hates it. I'm never going to allow that to happen around me. And, and, And it's just a blend of those, those things, you know, and it's, it's, that's the key is to learn what to take from who and when. Yeah to put in the, in the toolbox for later. And I think that's critical because I just know 
what did I respond well to or what did I respond negatively to and how, you know, how many of those good things can we get and, and how many of those negatives can we, can we eradicate from, from our operations? And like I said, you know, that there's no misconception. Guys aren't flying in, in first class and, and staying in penthouses everywhere yeah. they go. But, you know, if, if, uh, you know, 5,000 frequent flyer miles, you can upgrade a six foot five guy to premium economy. Well, do it. Yeah. He's going to be happier to go next time. It's selfish. Like partly, yes, I, I'm glad that they can have that added layer of comfort because I'm a respectful human. But in another breath, it's just commercial sense because if I want that guy to fly again next week, yeah, he's going to fly with me. Like Particularly if two people are asking that guy to fly, if he knows I pay him quicker, I pay him better, I look after his meals, his comfort, everything else better, He's going to choose me every time. So, yeah, great retention. Partly, it's a commercial decision. Yeah, correct. Yeah. We we want to be an employer of choice. We respect everybody that we hire. I don't, I don't have to lie in bed at night wondering what my team's up to or how they're performing or, you know, are they are they doing the right thing? I don't. We hire people that that I have that confidence in and that comfort in. Yeah, we give them the respect to do that and and the tools to do that. Um, as best they can because I know how quickly like some of our jobs are crap, right? Like it sounds sexy. A lot of the stuff we, we, when we publicize our industry, we talk about, I was with this celebrity or I did this trip on a private jet or I was up in this penthouse or whatever. And, and we make it cool. But anybody in the industry knows the reality is like, <laughs> I sit in the car for hours <laughs> on end watching yeah. somebody else live a cool life. You know, yeah. it's not always, you're out in the heat, you're out in the cold, you're not eating, you're not, you know, you, you can't just go to the toilet because you want to, you know. Yeah. There's so many restrictions on our role. If we can make that as comfortable as possible, people will perform better. Yeah. You know. And in terms of like the the sort of talent and, um, you know, the, the, the folks that you have working for you, how, what's the decision-making process in terms of um, who you hire? What do you look for? Um, you know, we alluded to before, like, there's a lot of people leaving the police, the military, um, but there's, you know, copy and paste that into thousands. Like, you know, unless you sell yourself, your, your, your experiences. Um, yeah. What, what do you guys look for in terms of hireability? So I think like uh, by default, a lot of our, um, a lot of our core group are law enforcement or military backgrounds, just because we're in those circles and we know those people. Yeah. Um, and we obviously can identify very quickly with those transferable skills. Yeah. Um, I think there's partly an intention behind that. I mean, some clients love hearing you've got an ex-special forces guy working on your team, whatever. Some people de- demand it. Like sometimes it's a criteria, but um, you know, I think I think it's a 50-50 blend that we've chosen to get down that path um, or we've just fallen into it. But having said that, we're we've identified already like I'm, I'm nearly 40. So I've got a few years left, but I know that like my peer group is going to hit that, that point of not wanting to do 20 hour days in weird countries and and whatever soon enough, we have to find that next wave. You know, we can't just rely on our first degree network to to do everything. Otherwise we're not evolving and we're not, you know, building long-term sustainability. Um, so we don't like we honestly don't have 
a criteria, it's attitude and aptitude beats almost everything. Like you can teach hard skills, but those human, you know, inherent, like intrinsic values and skills, you can't train those yeah. as much, you know. And we need to trust everybody on day one. I don't have a, you know, I don't have any nothing jobs. So I don't have a task that I can go, oh, we'll put you there for a, a few months and see if you're good on that. It's like I'm taking a risk on everybody that I hire yeah. because they're going face to face with my client. You know? um, so we, yeah, attitude and aptitude. Like I don't care if you've been a security guard for five years and that's it because you might've been learning and reading and studying and philosophizing and, and skill enhancing. And like, I think it was Gavin De Becker. I quote this a bit and I hope I'm quoting him correctly. He, he talks about pre-battle veterans. Yeah. Where like if you study or, or, or think through a scenario enough times in enough ways, you, you're eighty percent of the way right. yeah. to the experience of actually having done it. Right, you can do that from anywhere. Yeah, like you can do that as a security guard sitting at a desk somewhere doing nothing. You can be thinking all the time. You can be reading. You can that researching and studying and listening to podcasts. There's so much content available these days. You know, you can have that pretty quickly. It's then do you have the attitude and attitude to turn up, listen, learn. You know, be humble, be keen, yeah. show that sort of stuff. And and so our recruitment process um, it has always been essentially a pretty quiet, it's always pretty much a headhunting process. So either somebody comes to us or we identify somebody that we might like to, to hire. It's a slow, you know, let's talk a bit on LinkedIn. Let's look at your posts. Let's see your attitude towards things. Yeah. Then maybe let's grab a coffee or a beer and talk about the industry. These are all recruitment processes for us. Yeah. You know, it's not being sneaky. It's just let's slowly identify over time. Is this person a good fit? What would they be a good fit for? How do we work them in? What can we get out of them? And then eventually we might say, hey, there's a task here. Do you want to yeah, be interested in seeing what that looks like and then seeing how it goes? Because we have yeah. to have a trust in people from that first minute that, you know, and, and it's hard in our world because it's not standard HR, right? You don't work a 7.6 hour day. You don't work in the same environment. Like when I tell people, oh, make sure you, you take protein bars in your bag because you might not get to eat today. Yeah. Like a HR team would lose their mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I go like, you might not to get, might not get to use the toilet for three hours. I can't do anything about it. Yeah, like, that's inhumane. People would <laughs> freak over that concept, but it's like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. You know, it's I can't, the nature of the job, yeah. I can't control that. So, you know, you have to be resilient. You have to, to understand all that stuff. And I find that there's people with, you know, much less technical skills or, or background that just come in and throw everything at it and they want to learn and they're, and they're keen. But again, as you said, it's all about finding those people. Like how do I, like I can't sit and troll LinkedIn all day just hoping to find people. I'm busy, but people message me all the time. So, um, just starting out. How do you think I can progress? Like I'll spend the time. I'll talk to people. Yeah. It's for their benefit. It's what I can do. I feel I feel good doing that. But also, it's feathering my nest for the future. If if that person steps up, you know, since I've been talking to you, like a few of your colleagues have reached out in the last few months, and 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 hoping to open. I think conversations around transitioning and and, and potential movement into, yeah. or at least what that world looks like. And I'm happy to spend that time, and you know, whether it works out or not. Yeah, I, you know, it's like a, they choose fun. like you know one building a network like is, is it's always good anyways like you know from that social aspect but like like you were saying before like in terms of selfishness 
like it is that um you know just just having a potential talent there or somebody that knows someone you know that you could add to your talent pool um as a business yeah for growth for future mm. future proofing really um the the other thing that you guys do which i think is um clever like very very smart and i haven't really seen through many like i don't think many australian companies is, is you like your st- strategic partnerships so like you've got your partnerships mm. with um Ascent, with uh tac med with um ada mm-hmm. slash le gear mm-hmm. um what what's the decision making process with those sorts of partner partnerships um i know the the veteran owned component is obviously massive and, and rightfully so um but yeah it's, it's something that i don't really see too often in within australia like it's, it's a huge thing in the u.s like you know where you've got mm. like black rifle coffee who partner up with uh you know yeah insert other veteran brand uh, but not so yes. much in, in australia so what was um yeah what was what's that sort of decision making process like so i think in the end we, we identified that we have to work alongside so many partners to to get a job done like a major job i need a chauffeur company i need you know intelligence operators behind the scenes i need you know, medical response team, I need whatever, I need all these things. And rather than just saying to a client, well, you go figure out all the other eight things, I'll just, I'll do the security bit. Like it just seemed, I mean, one, it seemed rude. And two, it seemed like a, a missed opportunity. Like, And so, you know, we, we started out, I think, just referring like, oh, we, we suggest you use company A for this. Or, you know, if you overheard them say, I think we need blades, uh, you know, here's a business card. But then it was like that didn't seem enough like it seemed like missed opportunity i guess so we originally started talking then okay well maybe you go off and learn about that and you do that department and then i'll go and learn about this and yeah we hire people who can do these things and and then i was like yeah but we only want to do things that we're actually awesome at like i don't want to deliver a half product i don't want to be oh they're really good at this yeah they're okay at that I only want to deliver stuff that I can hand on heart say is is a product. And I realized like I'm only happy with what I do because I've been doing it for 20 years and and all those experiences over 20 years. That like if I want to go be the best chauffeur driver in town, it's gonna to take me 20 years to to go do that. And then I'm yeah. I'm retired by then. So it was like, let's just go find the best people in the spaces that we want to operate in or that we need to use. And if they're the best at what they do then by, by virtue, we're going to be the best at what they do because I'm offering that service now. Yeah. Um, so now there's been tasks, as you say, where we'll throw like five completely different, you know, um, areas of expertise or service delivery offerings at a task through completely different partners. But now they all know each other through our connection. So now they're using each other on, yeah. on that end for things. And, you, you know, we're the conduit to some stuff and not to everything. And, it, it just made sense, I guess. Like we want to deliver the best service. Let's just include as many things yeah. as we can. And with some of those partners, there's commercial arrangements. So we get something out of it. Sometimes it's building a relationship where there is no commercial arrangement and it's just about, you know, increasing each other's turnover or footprint in, a, in the market or yeah, or whatever, sharing the space. Um, sometimes it's just mutually beneficial. Yeah, and then like oh, like look byproduct out of that, like it's veteran companies helping veteran companies, which is awesome. Um, but it's also like uh, you you kind of move away from like going back again to policing, where 
it's, it's really a occupation where you're like you're jack of all trades master of none because there's so many different elements mm-hmm. to it um but now you're moving away from that and you're you know you're honing in your skill crafts and you are masters at what you're doing in each you know specific field yep. um which obviously comes out more professional as we mentioned before more bespoke um yeah no is this something that really i think that's what sort of uh, i'm trying to remember now how i like even sort of what drew me to empire i think initially it was um like a mutual connection elliot um lowenstein in the u.s mm-hmm. um who obviously mm-hmm. is um uh, heavily involved with the ufc security and then mm-hmm. that got me looking into you guys and um and then i just saw all the partnerships i'm like okay that's something very unique that I'd, I'd never really seen before um nice little tangent there the ufc so what was um because how how did that come about you guys had the have had is it still going on um like basically the ufc yeah, contract yeah. for australia um what yeah we were just in singapore recently for for the last show um so that was a kind of fortuitous i mean it's hard to talk like i'm not good at talking about myself but there's like you say it's fortuitous but like i guess you have to have created it first to, for it, for the opportunity to even be there so yeah i was working um a fixed term contract at an event space as a security risk manager. Um, and I was there on a fixed term project and the UFC just happened to be doing a show in that space at the time I was there. Um, and my job didn't involve at that time specifically operating on event roles or running event security or anything like that. Right. Um, sort of more in that consultancy space, but obviously it went well because, um, we, we got a few more calls for events down the track just to, just to help out with their team. And then, um, yeah, once I set the company up and it was to a standard that we could deliver that level of capability now, here's what we offer. And, um, yeah. yeah, it was pretty seamless. It just sort of went from that, you know, just me. And then it was just me and Ryan. And then it was bring a mate. And then it was like, okay, have, have all this work. So yeah, that was a, a slow, slow build just to, to sort of get to that that point but yeah it was just the the sort of chance meeting and then taking the opportunity out of that that chance meeting to to make something of it yeah yeah nice and um and then obviously in the last couple of you know uh, now a year ago but like with the pandemic a slowdown in uh obviously the ufc not coming to australia australia hardening up the borders um what was the uh what was it like for you guys during that sort of pandemic period if you don't mind sharing so i think we got back from an overseas job i think two days before the borders shut so we just snuck back in to avoid quarantine for those around the world that didn't know we had some of the strictest border control laws in the world both our national border and their domestic state borders um so i think we in the first month of border closures, I think it was like around a million dollars of cancelled jobs. Yeah. Just in that month. And it was like every day there's an email, we're not coming anymore. That's it. This isn't happening. That's it. And it was like, okay. I don't <laughs> like, there was like a real feeling of vulnerability. And like, that's everybody would have felt that, I guess, in, yeah. in the COVID space. It was just like, We'd done so well. We were doubling trade every year of operation. We were getting bigger and better every year. Honing all these things in 2019, 2020 was set to be like huge expansion. We had all these opportunities. We were working with new clients. We'd lined up work. We'd 
we'd actually gone out and done some marketing and really tried to pitch ourselves and 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 grow that that network and that that operating opportunity and then it just went and it was like everything just fell over in that in that one thing and and yeah. so there was like a couple of weeks of honestly like I'll honestly reflect on it. The first two weeks, we probably sat there and went, "What the fuck do we do now?" Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I don't claim we were just like, "Right, this is how we fix it." We we literally just went, "I don't, I don't know, I don't know what we're gonna do." Yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. Um, we had a, a a couple of key clients that were consistent and 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 remained like that we knew would remain. Um, so we just sort of had to sit back, I guess, once we we realized it was real and we couldn't just pretend it wasn't happening. We, we sort of, went, okay, well let's try and get the most out of those constant clients. Let's, let's try and squeeze them for more. Let's offer them more stuff. What else can we do to expand that, 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 that contract and, and, and whatever. And, and honestly, it was just a, a process of leaning back everything, like just scaling back everything to, yeah, we're pretty, again, I say fortunate, but, but I guess we did it. We we're essentially a debt free business. We haven't got, five million dollar business loans we're trying to pay back every every week so we don't have to have x amount of income yeah i guess to to fund that so we could scale back pretty quickly um so we just had to run as as lean as we could for for two years really not knowing where that would end up i guess um we we pushed into the consulting space a little bit harder than we'd tried to before because a lot of that you don't need to travel or you you know um those clients already here. So we started trying to push the risk management planning and the yeah. site security assessments and all those sort of things just to get us through. Um, so I think we, yeah, by doing that, I mean, we, we, we obviously got through. Um, I wouldn't say we were thriving over that, particularly that second year of, of closures. Um, but yeah, we, we survived, you know, we got through with, yeah, the kids were fed. And, and, and probably the saddest bit, to be honest, was like, I had people calling me saying, do you have any work? Like, can we just get some work? Is there anything anywhere we can't, whatever. And I remember a few times we took jobs that we wouldn't typically take that were paying crap money. Yeah. But I was like, Hey, we'll just take it, give it to the guys that need the work. Like there was jobs that we didn't make a cent off. Yeah. Cause we just couldn't cause the money was so bad, but we just go, okay, like we'll take it. That's 10 guys paid for the week. Yeah. If that helps people pay the rent, like awesome. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's one of those things. Like it was uh, obviously being a in in the security industry, you're like you're a sole trader basically. So it's not like you have the government help like um, other industries would have had. Um, the, one of the yeah, know, some of it were eligible for, but it, it wouldn't have worked out. Yeah, like you had to. Everyone had to be engaged prior to the pandemic dates, and uh, yeah. so we couldn't just sign people up and, and get that assistance for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't know if it was a, was it an intentional move to start up Empire Institute um, around that sort of time? Because like for me, that was, uh, you know, not knowing you guys, I was like, that is a genius move where you've gone online, made it all digital training courses. And for people listening in, I'll, I'll put all the links in below, but um, Empire Institute uh, is like kind of like your training wing, if you will. Um, but what's great about it is that it's delivered in a way that it's not... Um, you know, even if you're not in the security industry, but it's, you know, it's part of a portfolio if you're doing consulting or if you're doing risk management, I, I would certainly urge you to look through it and to, to, to do the courses because it's, it's highly beneficial. Um, so was that something that you started up specifically because of the pandemic or had you already planned to do that, you know, prior? 
I think we totally missed the boat, to be honest, commercially on that. Um, that like the the opportunity was obviously there, and I think that was probably the intention, but we just commercially got that bit wrong. So right. I think originally it was like we'd always wanted to do it, just never had the time to sit and dedicate to it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so we, we've got training backgrounds, we've got experience in that space, we like mentoring and stuff. So we're like, again, let's just put what we think down on, on record. And if people like it, awesome. You know, it wasn't, I suppose, where we missed the boat was that it, it, it should have been something we smashed out over COVID and really pushed it from a revenue perspective. Yeah. But we're just terrible salespeople, honestly. <laughs> like, it's just not what we do. And we didn't. Um. Yeah, we didn't take the opportunity at that point to really push that side of it. Like we didn't really try and market, to really make any big push. Like you know, guys like Byron Rogers, just awesome. They've developed such an amazing product brand. and following, yeah. and 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 brand through everything they do. Like it's so cool. Um. Yeah, we just didn't do it. Honestly, like it's there. The products there. There's still more coming. Yeah. Um. But yeah, just I guess. You know, we we identified that from day one. Like sales and marketing is our, our weak point, um, so we didn't really capitalize on that that side of it. But I think it was probably never about that. It was it was about saying let's get down what we think. Yeah, you know, as you said, like the, it's all professional development training, which we did on purpose because we don't want to have to follow someone else's rules of how to train a certain thing. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's professional development training, but it was. You know, we really, again, we just tried to think through, like I've been to some some intimidating places with limited resourcing. How did I feel about that? And how, other people in that space, how can we make them more comfortable if they have to go? Because as you said, it's not just for security people, like anybody that travels for work um, to any unfamiliar environment, any, there's heaps of stuff on, on travel planning and, you know, it's it's not security law enforcement military jargon. It's it's yeah. in a way that if if... Yeah, like we've got teachers that travel to to third world countries to to teach. You know, like it's that's what it's aimed at. It's aimed at everyone. Just yeah. tips of of how to make yourself safer and more comfortable, and understand you know what's involved in that planning process and and what what things you should have in place um, to make yourself safer and more comfortable without, I guess, just jamming rhetoric down your throat. It's not about that. It's like we offer this. This is what we think. This is my experience. How does that resonate with you? Yeah. You know, some of it will, all of it will, none of it will, whatever. But, um, you know, if you get something out of it, that's awesome. And I think that that's probably why we didn't push it as commercially as we could, because I guess that wasn't the core motivation. Um, but later this year, we'll be able to uh, have some far more awesome conversations about what we're doing with that, that training content. Because um, we've got some partnerships with some really awesome people coming up in that space that's going to make the content better and more easily accessible and then more recognized and, nice. and all that sort of stuff. So nice we finally figured out that we should actually do something with that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like another uh, sort of vertical to the business that you can grow, I suppose, um, that, you know, yeah. now, now that you've you've somewhat done a bit of a testing over over the pandemic, um, you could, yeah, certainly push, push yeah. more. Um, so what, so that, that's, I suppose, a sort of f- future plan, but what, what are the current sort of plans of the company um, now that Australia is, you know, back open again, the rest of the world's kind of traveling again, but there's, 
you know, all, all sorts of things happening in the, in the wacky, wonderful world at the moment. Um, so yeah, what's, what's, uh, what's your plan? What's the company's plan? So I think like what, and we were talking just before we started on air, um, we, we, we've had a huge, um, increase in, in workload this year. Um, it's keeping us very busy. We're, we're at a point where we're scaling our team even, even bigger, certainly a management team and some of our processes are scaling right up, which is taking the load off us at the very top, which allows us to scale even further. So yeah, like our domestic works up somewhere up towards a thousand percent up from, uh, certainly COVID and, and it's up pre COVID. Yeah, um, incredible. I think a lot of that's just like we've been around long enough now that people know us. We've done, you know, every job you do is a word of mouth to somebody else. Yeah. You know, if you work for a board member, they sit on six boards, they talk and you, you pick the work up. So I think, you know, part of it's the world's opened up. Part of it's our reputations yeah. that bit stronger. Um, part of it's that some of the competition changed their dynamic and, and the way they operate over COVID. Um, so domestically, we're, we're honestly just working super hard to to service everything we've got at the moment um and and scale the business so that capability increases and i think with with that workload this year and then still some uncertainties around the logistics of a lot of travel and some countries in our region in the asia pacific region or still have some some restrictions yeah i think early next year we'll hit the the business development tour and reconnect with with Asia Pacific and, and all those markets that we were hitting pretty hard prior to the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but obviously three years with that connection, we need to go back and understand those spaces and, and and reconnect with partners and see if they're still existing and what their operational capacity looks like now and all those sort of things. Cause you know, like countries aren't going to look like what they used to, no, you know, exactly, like yeah. one of the first things when, when Indonesia opened, like every Australian goes to Bali every three minutes. Right. And I was like, oh, the cheap flights are back onto Bali. And I, I just remember thinking, it's not going to look anything like what it used to. People have been to Bali 10 times. They stay in the same hotel, the same resort. They do the same things. But I haven't had an income for two years and yeah. it's a third world country. Yeah, those places so are open. it's going to have issues. Yeah, Like even if it's open, it's going to have, it's going to be through the roof. Yeah. Like poverty's through the roof. The, the poverty breeds crime. There's, there's no way that that, doesn't come with so many different challenges. It used to be a place you just get off the cheap flight, get on the bus to your hotel and don't think about it. Yeah. It's not going to be the case anymore. So we want to get that right before we go back to those markets. So we want to make sure we really understand the places we're operating in and yeah. And what that needs to look like from a resourcing perspective. So that'll be yeah, next year. Even like um like locally, I suppose like, you know, the landscape of like working from home, for instance, that like opens up a whole new uh, like mindset of security where, you know, the sensitive information people take in their work laptops home as opposed to being in a secure environment, like like the office building, um, you know, ramifications for like, if you have an injury at home and because you're working, is that, you know, is the company liable for that? Or, you know, like oh, there's so many different factors, mm-hmm. even locally that like the, the landscape's just completely changed. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys have in store for sure. Cause it's, it's always fun watching the journey and um, you know, like you never know what's going to happen obviously, but um, it's, 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 it's always a, uh, yeah, it's always kind of nice seeing the before and after. Um, We're kind of in the same seat as you mate. Cause there's always that like 
you know, when you're a kid and you looked at like CEOs of companies, you, I think I thought they had it like ingrained. They just knew they had some like lineal path that everything had to, you just do this. Whereas for us, it's like, oh, there's a problem. Can we solve it? Yep. Is there a business in that? Yep. Okay, let's go do that. And then yeah. we do it. You know, that I don't, I think so many people, like I used to have imposter syndrome, you know, you'd sit around at, at like board level meetings and you go, why am I in this room? How, how did I end up in the room yeah. having this discussion with these people? It just doesn't make sense to me because I'm just a guy doing what I do, you know, it didn't, it didn't sort of resonate. But I think we probably all have a piece of that. So it's, you know, there's not some like, I think anybody's bullshitting if they say, oh, I know exactly what next year looks like and here it is on a day-by-day calendar and this is how we're going to achieve success. Like you can have all those graphs yeah. and then the pandemic hits or then whatever happens, you know, like, yeah. as you say, it's unpredictable. So, yeah, well, I mean, you like- know, we just, we just work out what we're good at doing and then we work out if people want that and then we work out if we can sell it. Yeah. And that's <laughs> kind of that simple. Yeah, I think if if anyone uh, thinks that they know the future, it's like you know, two years ago we we're saying two weeks to flatten the curve, and then like you know, here, here yeah. we are. Um, yeah, but it's it's funny, like it's almost like an overcomplication sometimes when you, you there's so many different things going on, but instead of just taking one thing, breaking it down, seeing hey, can we capitalize mm. on this? Yes, we can, or no, we can't. Let's move on to the next thing. I was listening to a podcast the other day of um, this, this fighter pilot, and you know, he's flown every single going back to the piloting i suppose going going full circle now um but he was saying that like fighter pilots when they're making they've got you know many many decisions to make within such such a short amount of time but they live by like an 80 percent rule so it's like 80 percent you know would it work 80 percent of the time yeah let's you know let's let's do it or let's not like but but that's what it is it's not anything too too complex um yeah we've been going on for for a little while now so just to to wrap up i suppose i think there's there's been from this conversation certainly like um you know you've, you've had a a lot of things in life sort of uh work for you and then things not work for you like from the from the pilot sort of uh side of things um you know from the policing and then to the private sector and then back to the corrections and then back to the private sector what's the thing that keeps you going like you know uh when, when times get tough or when, when you know when things don't go your way what what what's the thing that sort of keeps you going Ah, uh, look. I think the first thing to recognise is like things that I've had in my life go wrong. You know, in perspective, they're typically first world problems. Like, you know, it's not like I grew up a rich kid or anything, but you know, I always was fed and clothed and warm and and safe and secure. So, you know, but I don't think anything I've had in my life has been like in my personal life, at least, has been, um, you know, with perspective has, has been really that bad. Um, I think it's just like for me, it's a drive. Not so much to not fail, but to find that success. Like I want to be proud of what I'm doing. Yeah. So I chase that thing that I think will make me proud of, of what I can do. And and that's the times that I've not enjoyed things is when I've stopped being or, or stopped being proud of what I'm doing or found that it, it actually doesn't make me proud when I thought it would. So that's when I kind of say, well, okay, I don't enjoy this anymore. I'm not getting that fulfillment. I'm not contributing to things the way I wanted to, or I'm not, um, getting yeah getting that fulfillment out of it so um that's when i've moved on and, and like you know if you look at my resume it would look a bit choppy for that first 10 years because i did bounce around but it was you know in, in that pursuit of finding the thing that i wanted to to kind of put everything into and and i put everything into everything i did i just found like 
I didn't want to keep putting everything into those those things. And and I think, you know, I go back to that that conversation again about that sixteen when they wanted an eight year commitment for the Air Force. Like heaps of people do that. That's awesome. I I couldn't get my head around that at the time. But I think we put so much pressure on everyone in the world. Like at sixteen, why why are you making those life decisions? That's insane. Yeah. We don't let a sixteen year old vote. We don't let him drive. We don't let him like do jury duty. Yet, yeah. you know, create the rest of your life in that. Come on now, like. So I think I give myself a fair bit of slack for not knowing that at the time. And everybody, and I know so many people that that when I did like a law degree and then never worked a day in the law industry in their life. Yeah, you know, like is that any better? Like I don't, you know. Yeah, they probably feel more pressure because they. They wasted that time or spent money or whatever it is. So I don't know. I, I don't. I got my shit together when I was thirty. Essentially, like I, by thirty, I tried everything I needed to try. Yeah. I, I worked out what I liked, what I enjoyed, what worked for me, what didn't, and I went and pursued the the right things. I went. That's what works for me. That's what's going to make me happy and successful and fulfilled and, and content. They're the things I'll do. All those things are things I won't do. Yeah. And I didn't really tangibly cognitively figure that out till 30 but whatever like how can how can you be expected to to have that figured out at, at 16 17 whatever you know and, yeah, and yeah. i now know like with absolute clarity because i've done things yeah like i actually tried that actually hated it actually no i'll never do it again you know and that yeah. and that directs yeah. yeah i think like one like having that like you were saying like that introspection to sort of check yourself to go yeah am i passionate about this am i not um but then yeah like trying different things but also you know putting putting your all into everything that you do clearly is 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 you know that 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 striving for excellence is is certainly important but yeah be being willing to just kind of step away to go well this isn't for me even though i put everything into it let's try Mm -hmm. something new i think that's that's very important like not not to put your eggs in the same basket yeah I didn't go to college or university, but I just see that whole 10 year period as that. Like, yeah, it was work experience. It was on the job. It was, you can call it apprenticeships. You know, there's plenty of on the job study in there. There was plenty of like academic study involved in those things. So I just look at that whole process as my equivalent of, of university or college. Yeah. But when I came out, I was absolutely work ready. You know, it, it was a master's degree in that sense. Um, yeah. You know, because I had so much experience in that process, so I don't regret any of it. Like I, I remember there were times where I was stressed about it or felt pressured about it, but looking back, like, yeah, yeah, top, top yeah, part of the if journey. Yeah, if you're happy with where you are, you can't be unhappy with what got you there. So, yeah, fair, fair play. All right, Josh, um, where where can people sort of get in touch with you? Um, uh, you know, uh, were you on social media or anything like that? Yeah, so I've got a pretty active LinkedIn profile just under my name. Um, there's a, a company profile under Empire Protection and a company profile under Empire Institute. Um, I'm absolutely happy when I have time to, to speak to anybody. So people have questions about transitioning um, out of government or, or what private sector looks like or what it takes to be in a certain space. Every time I've got time, I'm happy to, to have those conversations. Um, LinkedIn's probably the easiest. Um, well, most you know appropriate place to to hit me up there, I guess. Um, company website, if anybody wants to know more about us, is uh, empireprotection.com.au or empireinstitute.com.au. Um, 
we'll create a, a discount code for the Institute products um, for listeners of your podcast. So I'll, awesome. I'll get that to you Sweet. soon so you can post that up. Um, yeah, but I, look, I'm happy to talk when I've got time. I'm happy to I'm happy to engage with everybody and, and I try and be as honest and open and approachable as I can. And I think if, if more people did that, we'd all be more comfortable where we're at. So. 100%. And um, I can certainly attest to, uh, you know, you taking time out to, to have chats with me to um, you cer- certainly help me with my sort of this this in-between period of, you know, my professional journey. Um, it's been great bouncing ideas off of you and, and Ryan and, um, you know, fully support everything you guys do. Uh, just wish we'd met sooner. Um, but, uh, you know, next time I'm back in Australia, if you're if you guys in the UK, we'll um, definitely sit down for a couple of pints, maybe um josh thanks again mate for being on the podcast and um, i'll link all those links below um in due course cheers guys thanks for listening everyone